Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'm so excited because Courageous Conversations is back. We weren't able to have it last year because of COVID, but this year it is back with a vengeance. We are so excited for the seven amazing topics we have, Christianity and white supremacy, rediscovering early African Christianity, black religions and the next generation, slavery in the Bible, politics in the pulpit, truth and trauma, patriarchy in the church. We are squeezing a lot of courageous conversations this year in Washington, D.C., September 3rd and 4th at National Community Church. Listen, you don't want to miss it. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Now, this is a hybrid conference. We have 250 in-person tickets available, and they are on the way to selling out. Um, So the next option would be the virtual pass. All of that is available at CourageousCombos.org. I'm so excited about it. We have amazing panelists. We have Dr. Christina Edmondson, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Esau McCauley, Dr. Eric Mason, Dr. Lisa Bowens, Dr. Otis Moss, Dr. Marvin McMickle, Dr. Vince Bantu, Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, Dr. Cheryl Sanders. It's going to be amazing. I would not miss it, whether in person or virtually. So get your tickets today at CourageousConvos.org. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Pre-COVID, a friend and I went to a soul food buffet As we got our plates and our trays, we journeyed through the line and I stopped by the vegetable station. Got greens and green beans. As I was serving up my plate, I noticed my friend going a little further to the starches and to the meats. He was going to get macaroni and cheese, rice and gravy, fried chicken. And as he did that, I took note of it. So when we got to the table, I asked, why did you skip over all those other vegetables? Why did you skip over the greens and and green beans? He said he didn't really find them appetizing and because he wanted to enjoy his meal, decided to just get what he wanted, what would make him feel good. The study of philosophy is much like that soul food line. There are a number of persons who would rather avoid the unappetizing greens and green beans and go straight to the meats and starches and even dessert. We've been taught in many of our churches that philosophy is not something Christians ought to study. As we look at Colossians 2 and 8, it becomes a proof text for that, where it says that be careful not to be captivated by philosophies. There are those who have experienced those who have studied philosophy, and they can come off as very arrogant and rude, elitist even. Then there are those who've studied in various seminaries who have left a bad taste in the mouths of parishioners who would often say, folks go off to the seminary just to go to the cemetery. (laughs) Friends, I get it. I understand that philosophy is not very appetizing to many. 
even in careers. Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, once noted that he would prefer people study plumbing over philosophy because the question that arises is, what good would that do, being a philosophy major? What kind of job would you get with that? Tragically, to our malfeasance, to our shame, we have not done a great job in the church, and particularly in the black church, in helping young people, old people, understand the blessing and benefit of good philosophy. So in the time we have, I want to take you through that soul food line. I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, don't skip over the greens and green beans. You're gonna need those. Even if you put a little hot sauce on them, it'll be okay because ultimately, if you're going to study apologetics, if you're going to be an apologist, if you're going to defend the faith, if you're going to give people a defense of the hope that is within you, what Christ has done in your life, there are those out there who are going to ask philosophical kinds of questions, and you've got to be ready to give an answer. So as we begin our time together, the question is, what exactly is philosophy? Philosophy comes to us from two Greek words, philos and sophia. Together, they basically mean the love of wisdom. Another way of defining philosophy is that it is the pursuit of wisdom, knowledge, truth. In the words of Socrates, it is about examining our lives and our ideas. Socrates says that the unexamined life it's not even worth living. The reality, friends, is that many of us go throughout life and we just take things for granted. We assume things. Grow up in a certain home, to a certain family, in a certain neighborhood, a certain part of the country, the world. We learn certain languages, eat certain kinds of foods, study certain kinds of subjects, have various aspirations, goals, but very few of us spend the time to ask ourselves, what means all of this? Do we really believe in what our parents taught us? Do we really want to be a doctor or a lawyer? Do we really understand and appreciate our value system? When we say we believe that the Bible is the word of God, are we able to articulate that to an unbeliever? Philosophy helps us to examine the, these ideas because philosophy invites us in a quest for knowledge, a quest for wisdom. I like the word wisdom over knowledge because wisdom is not just about the accumulation of data, facts, and truths. Wisdom is about applying knowledge to life. The best philosopher isn't just trying to outsmart the next woman or man. The best philosopher is seeking to find a path to enlightenment, a path to justice, a path to peace, to live wisely in the world. And so we who believe in Jesus, we who follow him, know him as the truth. But friends, we know there are those out in the world, in our neighborhoods, on our jobs, in our classrooms, 
who do not yet know him as truth. And so the philosopher among us would invite anyone on that journey, journey of knowledge, truth, and understanding, that journey that examines our lives, ideas, and assumptions in the light of reason, in the light of wisdom. So I've shared with you what philosophy means, a very basic definition, and we don't have time to really unpack every dimension of philosophy, but in a way of inviting you into this conversation, I want to just outline a few elements of what makes philosophy philosophy. But before I do that, I do want to share a bit of my own testimony. There are those, as I noted, who do not yet know the Lord Jesus as the truth, as wisdom personified. And I can empathize with that because I was once someone who asked the big questions, the tough questions. And unfortunately, there were those in my own context that either couldn't or refused to answer those questions. It led me then into a moment and mode and mood of skepticism. My early teens, I was a seeker, looking for truth under any rock, looking for anything that could give me a sense of guidance, a sense of hope. The truth is I wanted to believe desperately in the God of Scripture, but had too many questions about things I didn't see lining up, either intellectually or ethically. It was only after having a radical encounter with Jesus, one that changed my life forever, that I was able to understand how revelation can trump reason. And yet, my relationship with the Lord that ceased my age of agnosticism, my age of doubting, did not take away my mind. James Cone once noted on a panel discussion that we in the black church have to love God with our minds, not just our hearts, not just our hands, but also with our heads. Philosophy is the way, if you will, of helping us learn to love the Lord with our heads, with our minds. So though I am deeply committed in following Jesus, I appreciate there are those out there who have questions, big or small, and philosophy helps us to ask better questions and to provide better answers. So then, philosophy, this way of discovery, this seeking truth, this love of wisdom, is usually studied in a variety of ways. And I want to begin with some of the big ticket items and work my way down. Historically, when people looked at philosophy, be they the Greeks or the Egyptians or the Jews, they were looking primarily at a subject called metaphysics. In other words, they were asking the big questions, behind the scenes questions. For instance, metaphysical questions would, would help us wrestle with issues like, do we exist? If we do, how do we know? What is the world? 
What's working in the world behind what we can empirically taste, touch, etc.? The metaphysical questions are those super big questions you ask yourself when you begin to say, why am I here? What's my purpose? Why do I love or why have I been rejected? It, it sort of steps back a little bit and tries to examine things that you can't readily see or taste or touch. And so many of our philosophical questions begin at that level. But philosophers don't simply stay in the clouds. They help us think critically and readily about these issues with a subject called logic. Logic is an area of study that helps us think clearly. Now, I won't bore you with logical truth tables, but I do want to lift up a certain subject within logic that is very beneficial to many of us. It will actually help us as we seek to engage people with the truth of the gospel. It's an area called logical fallacies. Logical fallacies are a defect, a break in our reasoning. It's, as it were, jumping ahead. Think about it this way. Uh, many of you may be too young to remember the VHS, those audio cassette tapes or those rather video cassette tapes that we would put into video players, VCRs. And every now and again, once you've played those tapes too much and too long, they start to skip. They, uh, you start to see where a scene kind of blurs and all of a sudden you're jumping to something else and you know, wait a minute, I've seen this scene before, I've seen this act before, I know that the, 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 the tape is missing something. Well, a logical fallacy is like that. It's sort of jumping from one point to another and you miss very important elements. Reality is, friends, we all commit logical fallacies. Even the best and brightest of us have moments when we either unintentionally or intentionally commit logical fallacies. We're in the middle of a presidential election, and when you look at presidential ads on television, they're all, most always, filled with logical fallacies. Let me offer just a few that are more common as a way of helping us think about how not to commit them. One of the biggest logical fallacies that most of us have committed or will commit is the fallacy of ad hominem. An ad hominem attack is one where instead of looking at a person's argument, we attack them. So, for instance, someone comes to you and says, you know, you ought to stop smoking because smoking is bad for your health, and I want you to be around for a while for your kids or for your family, so may you please stop smoking. An ad hominem attack would, instead of engaging what's stated, begin to say something about the person's hair or their makeup or their eyelashes or their necktie or the, the length of their, of their shirt, something that really has very little to do with the argument. We often hear ad hominem attacks when we begin to disparage a person because of their beliefs or because of their color or because of their gender or whatever. We, we find these ways of, of avoiding the argument, avoiding the, the, the real situation. Let me hasten to say, when I use the language argument, I'm not saying that in a way that talks about loud fussing matches. 
An argument is really something more like what you see in a court of law, where you're trying to make a case and you've got to have various steps to get there. And so sometimes with logical fallacies such as ad hominem attacks, we, instead of looking at the validity of the argument, we begin to call each other names. We talk about each other. We play the dozens. That's one very critical uh, fallacy that we see often. Here's another one that, that I, I just irks me, right? It's the fallacy of the straw man, the straw man fallacy. A straw man fallacy basically means you take the worst caricature of a person's argument or belief and use that to argue against all the people who agree with the best of that argument. Put it this way. Have you ever seen people get into denominational debates and what they'll begin to do is they'll call out the person or group that worst represents that particular community? They'll say, oh, well, you know, for instance, we'll see this in Christianity. Oh, I wouldn't be a Christian because of the Crusades or because of slavery. And those are very important elements that we got to wrestle with and deal with. But all of Christianity cannot be subsumed by the Crusades or by transatlantic slave trading. Christianity is not all that. There are other elements to the faith that are actually very, very good, very important. Christianity has given us human rights and hospitals and all kinds of things. But the strongman argument would, or, or, or fallacy would only look at the worst case scenario and then say, because of that, this explains everything else about a particular subject, a particular group of people. The strongman is taking the worst examples and magnifying them. That is related also to what is called a hasty generalization, whereas a straw man fallacy uh, really kind of take the worst argument and then tries to map it on a whole group, um, you know, maybe a belief system. Hasty generalizations are similar in that we, for instance, see one black man with dreads and, and saggy pants robbing someone, and so we assume that all black men with dreads and saggy pants are robber, robbers. It's a hasty generalization. We jump from one isolated incident, and then we made it a case for the broader uh, public, public. And so one of the things we've got to, to do when we think about these logical fallacies, and going back to what Socrates said, is examine, slow down, ask yourself, is this accurate? Is this true? For instance, do I truly understand my opponent's position, right? One of the things we learn in philosophy is that if I'm gonna argue against something, I've got to argue against the thing that needs to be argued against. In other words, I need to represent the other's argument in such a way that they recognize it if I stated it. One of the things that philosophy helps us do is to be better persuasive people where I could say, let me better understand where you're coming from. And I, I want to submit this as, as a, a, an apologetic. For instance, as Christians, if we're wanting to help invite people out of other religious traditions, what we don't need to do is to do the same thing that's been done to many of us. We don't take the worst of their tradition. We understand it, explore it, appreciate the good, and try to get around the bad. And it's sort of like what Paul does on Mars Hill. He acknowledges, hey, I see that you're a very religious people. 
You've got all these shrines, and then you've got one to unknown God. He starts with a point of intersection and then moves to the point of distinction. He begins where there is some sense of not necessarily agreement, but at least some shared appreciation, then says, let me introduce you to someone else. Learning logic and how to avoid logical fallacies is just one very important role in philosophy. In fact, it is sort of one of the first places we go in philosophy. You've got to learn those logical things, and I dare not bore you with all the intricacies of that, but basically, philosophers are logical people. We don't want to tear down people or tear down arguments in ways that don't appeal to the best of our rational selves. So metaphysics deals with the big questions, the behind-the-scenes questions, and logic helps us to think more clearly about things. But once you move beyond there, there are a variety of sort of buckets, if you will, that many philosophers kind of pour their wisdom searches into. One way that has come out of classical philosophy has been looking at philosophy as the search for truth, goodness, and beauty. So I'll begin with the first bucket, truth. There's an area of philosophy called epistemology. And epistemology basically means the study of knowledge. Many of us say we know things, but the epistemologists will say, how do you know that you know? What is it that you claim to know? How can you communicate that so-called knowledge to others? As we seek truth, it is important to appreciate the ways we come to know things. We may know something because a dream we had. We may know something because of an angelic visitation. We may know things because we experienced it. We touched it. We tasted it. We saw it. We heard it. The philosopher in this area would ask us to think through what we claim to know and how we claim to know it. When you say you know something, the epistemologist says, well, tell me how you know it. Now, sometimes this is where philosophers get a bad name because sometimes in our defensiveness we'll say, well, I just know, and the philosopher pushes back. Well, just know is not, a, not an answer, it's a circular argument. I know because I know, that's not really explaining anything. And so the philosopher in this area would say, think about why you claim to know this, and how did you come to know it? What, what are you using as your benchmark for knowledge? So epistemology deals with the area of knowledge. How do we know things? How do we come to know them? How do we know when we know something, when we don't know something? And how then do we communicate that knowledge to others so that they can come to know if we believe it is important for them to know it? Moving on from epistemology, there are other areas. I talked about truth and there's goodness. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. Then there's ethics, study of the good, the good life, how to be good. What is goodness? Ethics is in some ways best understood as living to live wisely. Ethics is about what we believe about 
how we are to interact with the world, with others, our obligations, our responsibilities, our dedications. I want to spend a little more time here because this is an area that many of us think through quite a bit, I think. What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to live the good life? Ethics steps back and says, let's take a look at the things we've come to believe about being a good person, living a good life, and examine whether or not we truly believe that. Our parents taught us certain things. We learned certain things in church. We see certain things in the broader culture. How did you come to think that to be true? And you'll notice my language of thinking here ties back to epistemology. And so epistemology is important to, to know what we believe to be good or bad. And so ethics, in one sense, tries to think about how do we know it? What do we know? about being good or living the good life. I talked earlier also about metaphysics. Here is a very important element in ethics called meta-ethics. That's where we step back and say, if these things are true, that we're to do X and not do Y, where do those things come from? Did they come from God, from a social contract, from ourselves? And then from meta-ethics, there are these distinctions between what we call descriptive ethics and normative ethics. Descriptive ethics tries to help basically describe things. Here's what a set of people believe about a set of things. This is how they articulate it. It's simply describing. It's not endorsing. It's not defaming. It's simply saying it is what it is. But then there's normative ethics. Normative ethics is where someone is saying, not only can I describe it for you, I commend it to you. This is how we ought to live. This is what we should do. And so let me just walk through a little bit of that without getting into too much complicated stuff. There are generally three types of ethical people. There are those who believe they ought to be good because of the consequences of actions. There are those who believe they ought to be good simply because there's a duty to be good. And then there are those who believe you ought to be good for goodness sake. Those who believe that you ought to be good for consequences are usually called consequentialists. In other words, they do good things because of the consequences or they don't do bad things because of the consequences. Some of the consequentialists in this area would be utilitarians. Utilitarians basically believe that we do good to maximize the good. We make this decision because we'll maximize the pleasure on the other end. Individually, there are those who would look at that in terms of, I'm gonna do certain things based on whether or not it brings me pleasure or prosperity. I'm gonna do certain things because um, it's gonna make me happy or those around me happy. But that's based on the consequence. You're not necessarily doing it because you want to be a good person, per se. You're doing it because there is a, a benefit to you or to others. Well, the second group of folks, those who believe that you have a duty to do things, are usually called deontologists or duty ethics folks. God has told them to do what is right or what is good, so do it. 
or the military or their president or their mom or their dad said, do this, don't do that. They say we will do this and we won't do that because we have a moral responsibility to fulfill our duty. The last group of ethical folks would be those who subscribe to virtue ethics. That what's good for us is not simply doing good things for different reasons, either because of consequences or out of a sense of duty, but because we're to be good people, salt of the earth people. We're to be the kind of people who people can trust. We can be the kind of people, according to David Brooks, who don't live simply for our resume virtues, but rather for our eulogy virtues. Not what looks good on a resume, but what people will say over us at our funeral. So ethics is, in many ways, the study of how to live a good life, to live a moral life, to live a decent life, and depending on where you stand, you're going to do that in different ways. But again, philosophy helps us think through those things, meditate on those things, so that, again, according to Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so that's a summary of ethics. And so the last portion of this that I want to address in this shorter video is the quest for beauty, the knowledge of beauty. What makes something beautiful? Or what makes something just? What makes us fight for something meaningful? Aesthetics is the study of beauty, and so that can deal with anything like what makes art art. And so let's, for instance, think about some of the clashes in our cultures about what is real music. Is it classical music, contemporary music? In contemporary music, is it old school hip hop or is it mumble rap? The debate about what makes music music, what makes rap rap, what makes song song, in some ways is a philosophical question about certain perceptions we have of what is beautiful. But I would also argue that in many ways, issues of justice and community can also fit under this, even though they would rightly fit under ethics. What does it mean for us to achieve the beloved community of a place where all people are seen as equal, that no one is seen as unattractive, undervalued, unnecessary? And so whether you're talking about what makes a sanctuary beautiful, or what makes a person, for that matter, beautiful, or whether you're talking about what makes for a beautiful struggle. There is a philosophical sense about asking the right kinds of questions, not taking things for granted. When we say X person is beautiful or handsome, what are we really saying? Whose report will we believe? And so taken together, these various areas, the seeking of wisdom in what we know about truth and goodness and beauty, draw us into a realm of inquiry, a quest bound up in our questions that hopefully leads us on a journey of knowledge and understanding. As it applies, however, to Christian faith, discipleship, and apologetics, there are some ways we can look at those elements we've discussed and help to go even deeper into our understanding of what it means to be a follower of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
In our longer video, I will address what we call the philosophy of religion as it relates to issues like the veracity of scripture, the existence of God, and of course, following Jesus and knowing him as Lord and Savior. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.